I was recently talking to a friend about why we don't take more time off and why we don't just up and leave and do some wild and crazy stuff like we might have done. And we both came to the, uh, we came to the conclusion that our lifestyle and maybe specifically our dental practices kind of own us. It's a little sad when you think about it because it's, we're so hung up in the concept of we have to be there to run the practice. We can't not be there or the practice will fall apart. And in my case, we have a horse farm, the same story. We have to, we have to be there for the horses twice a day. And so the lifestyle that we've built is one that doesn't allow us a lot of freedom to do a lot of things. Interestingly, uh, our income and our job and our status is an excellent thing, yet because of the way that we've built it, we don't really have a lot of freedom. And it, it started me thinking about some things. I've been studying Stoicism, as I've mentioned before, as a philosophy. And honestly, I, I don't study it deeply as much as how it can actually affect my life on a day-to-day basis, helping me deal with regular problems and helping me deal with the fact that I tend to be a relatively emotional person. And, and I find it really helpful. But one of the, one of the exercises that Stoics oftentimes practice is um, they consider loss aversion. So what they do is they actually practice being without something that is very important in their life. In other words, because we have a car, they might take a day where they don't use their car at all because they're almost practicing the idea of losing it. Stoics believe that basically we only, everything is kind of transitional except for our own reasoned actions, reasoned thoughts. Uh, we don't really own anything. It's everything's transitional, including the people in our lives. Everything is transitional. And that's, that's pretty deep and it's pretty heavy. And I don't necessarily think about that all the time, but I know that's part of stoicism. And then I realized what would happen if the life that I had created, the life that we had created, the practice that we had created, what would happen if that was all taken away from us? How would that change your life? And would you be able to tolerate it? And then I realized, I know a lot about this already. I'm going to tell you about it in a minute. Let's do this. Alan Mead is a dentist with too much time on his hands and too much recording equipment in his basement. Armed with an obsession to bring entertaining and informative content to the dental world in a way that's never been done before, I give you... The Alan Mead Experience. Well, hello and welcome to the Alan Mead Experience. I'm your host, Alan Mead. And uh, before I dig in a little bit, I would like to thank the people that make this and every episode of the Alan Mead Experience possible. Premier Dental Products, inspired solutions for daily dentistry. I think about them a lot because I actually use a lot of their products on a day-to-day basis. Today, I considered... Life without the periwise probe, and I decided it. I like it better with the periwise probe. Now, it's a periodontal probe. They, it comes in several uh, several varieties. Uh, it's plastic, so it's it's a little softer than a metal probe. It is significantly more comfortable. I thought about this like three times today as I was checking a, I was checking periodontal depths on a tooth that I wasn't sure what was going on with, and I was thinking to myself, I really can probe. Uh, more accurately because it's more comfortable. I don't have patients jumping around in the chair when I'm doing this. Uh, you know, your hygienist will love this thing. It comes in. Uh, it comes in several. It comes in just 
straight measurement. But what I like is they have a couple of them that have like green and red, and green basically is three millimeters and under, and red is is anything over. And that's really a great visual for yourself and for your patients if you're able to show them. Uh, but they're way more comfortable than a regular probe. Uh, I'm hoping next year we're going to be able to come up with like the Periwise Challenge where you can actually get one of these things from Premier and try it. Try it on yourself. Try it on your team. I think you'll find that it's way more comfortable. Um, I think it's time to throw out metal probes and use these only. I'm all about that. So, again, Premier, thanks for supporting the show. Inspired Solutions for Daily Dentistry. So I've been thinking a lot about loss. What would happen if I wasn't able to go back to the practice that I've been in for almost 20 years now? And then I remembered there was a time where I was out of the practice for almost five months. I've talked about uh, the fact that I'm a recovering person. I'm approaching 16 years clean and sober uh, next month, so I'm kind of excited about that. But um, And I've talked a lot about active addiction and how screwed up it was. I have to tell you, I haven't talked much about what it was like when I first stopped. Um, and it's very interesting. Looking back, especially since I've been studying sort of stoicism lately, um, I've had a pretty good exercise in, in, in loss, man. Like in, in losing something that you, you, uh, you based your life on. I think a lot of dentists look at themselves as dentists first. They might be parents first or husband, wife first, whatever. But, but I think a lot of their, a lot of their meaning and a lot of their, uh, a lot of their significance is wrapped up in the work that they do. And so when you think about the fact that, you know, what if you were gone from your practice for a month, two months, four months, you know, what would happen? What would happen to you? What would happen to the practice? Uh, what, what about the people that, that, you know, are used to seeing you that if you're not there, what, what's life going to be like? And, and can, you know, is this a life worth living? So back in 2002, um, I was intervened on by my family and friends. I, uh, I had, I had been, uh, basically in a raging, uh, addiction. My, my thing was opiates, um, pain pills basically, but but whatever I could get my hands on, I used, I used all kinds of stuff. Um, I was, I, I was in the opioid crisis before the opioid crisis was cool. I like to say, but, um, my, my family figured out what was going on. Uh, a really good friend of mine who's an oral surgeon figured out what was going on with me. I wasn't forthcoming about it, but, but it was pretty obvious that I was screwed up. And so they planned a, an intervention on me, which of course, you know, saved my life and, and made a huge difference. But, but a lot of times when I'm telling my story, that's like the last minute or so of my story. And then I wrap it up. And so I'm going to dig in a little bit deeper about what, what it meant to be in treatment for that long and, and to be away from the life that I had created for myself for that long and, and, and what it means today. Why is that something that's been helpful and good for me today? So on uh, January 10th, 2002, uh, it was the last day. No, January 9th was the last day that I ever used. Was, so January 10th was the first day that I had clean and sober. Uh, January 9th, I went to work like any other day, and um, they had planned an intervention for me on that day. So after lunch, no one came back to the office. No patients did. Actually, it's crazy. One patient actually did, long story short. But uh, the my team had been told to clear out, not come back and to clear the schedule, but one person didn't get the message. So they actually showed up. It was crazy. So I came back after lunch and I was alone and I know what was going on. It was, it was crazy. I, I kind of thought maybe the, the jig was up. I wasn't, I wasn't sure it was pretty awful. 
this patient shows up. I actually worked on him alone with no team, and I was it was really. But my sister eventually called and told me a told me a story that. She, long story short, they didn't realize that I took lunch at noon rather than one, and so they had all scheduled to be there at one, and so I was sitting there wondering what was going on. Anyhow, they finally came in and explained to me that I was being intervened on, and and uh, my intervention was ex- the opposite of. <laughs> For as much as I remember of it, it was the opposite of any of those TV ones where, where the family comes in and explains to the addict how much they love them and how they have to turn on the addict. Always freaks out and yells and screams and leaves. I had been trying to kind of quit on my own, and I, I had literally come to come to the realization that I couldn't quit, and so that was going to be it. It was basically I was just going to keep using till I got caught or I died. And uh, luckily I got caught by them and I guess not the DEA. But uh, so they all came in and I gave up. I'm like, hey, I'm ready to go. They had uh, my brother-in-law and a, and a good friend of mine who's an oral surgeon in town had actually kind of set up um, a spot for me in a detox unit that night. And then I was going to go on to a treatment center that I'll tell you about in a little while. But so literally they came on like a, it was a Tuesday afternoon. I think it was a Tuesday. It might have been a Thursday. I think it was a Tuesday. Um they showed up and uh, they whisked me away, right? Like, the, and and this happened quickly enough that like, no one thought to actually pack any clothes or anything for me, and and I certainly hadn't, obviously. So I I got whisked away to a detox center in Grand Rapids, and basically from Saginaw to Grand Rapids is about two hours. Grand Rapids, Michigan is west side of Michigan, and this is where the detox center was. I've only been in one detox center, so I don't have much to compare to. Uh, this place was. I mean, technically, it was an inpatient treatment center. You could potentially go to treatment there for up to, I want to say, 30 days, maybe even two months if you if you qualified for it. But it was mostly a detox center. There's a whole wing of places where people basically would come in and they would, they would medically detox you. Um, opiate detox is really unpleasant. Um, interestingly, it's not that dangerous. It's, it's mostly unpleasant. Um, uh, I had, I had diarrhea for like five months after I, after I came off opiates, it's, it's ugly. But the crazy thing is when I was in trouble, I was actually going through withdrawal pretty regularly. Cause I like didn't have a regular supply. I was always constantly running out and having to get more. Um, it's, it's sort of the opiate addicts problem. You can never, it, you use everything you have. And so you just kind of run out. But, uh, so detox is, you know, depending on what you're using, it has to be medically controlled more or less. Like alcohol and benzodiazepines are really dangerous. Like there's, you know, if you are a heavy user of those things, there's a big chance that you're going to have seizures. So you have to be kind of medically handled. I detox. I think I was technically in detox for two or two and a half days. It was, it was, I, I got in there. Actually, it was a Thursday. I remember now it was a Thursday and it was like a winter weekend. I was there for Thursday through Sunday actually, and then partway through Monday. And um, it was crazy because, okay, so I got there, and I was just a guy. I left Saginaw, and I was Dr. Mead. When I got into detox, I was just a guy. Now, that's not to say that I didn't describe where I came from and what I did at every turn, it seems like. I realized later that that was probably not a very smart thing to do, but kind of wanted to let everyone know that I was an educated person and I was like I was like I was a person I was something I was I was not just nothing but what was crazy was like some of the people that I met in this detox center were 
really, really sad cases. Like I look at where I came from and I was a mess, but, but like some of these people were really sad cases. I, I was, I roomed with a guy who I don't even remember. He was, he, he had been there for a couple of days when I got there. So in the room that I landed in for, for one thing, they, <laughs> I showed up on a, a Thursday night. I had nothing. I just had literally the clothes on my back. And, um, so that's what I had to sleep in. I had to sleep in what I, what I wore and, and, when you're on detox, they come in every 30 minutes to check your vitals, so there is no sleeping. But the other thing is, is I was in, in massive withdrawal, too, so I was pretty uncomfortable. There was, and, and also, I literally had no idea what was going to happen. Like, I had been using, I had had this lifestyle of, of, you know, an active drug addict for like four years, and it was on and off. It was amazingly screwed up, and it was me essentially constantly searching for the next my next score. So I would have some stuff, but the reality is, is it was, it was, it was a crazy lifestyle, but it was a lifestyle that I had become accustomed to. I was pretty comfortable with. I hadn't contemplated the idea that there was a lifestyle that didn't involve that. So I'm sitting here in a a hospital room being bothered every 30 minutes uh, overnight for the first night for my vital signs with a dude that, you know, had been there for three or four days and, like was wearing a hospital gown and the paper slippers because that's all he had. I think he was a homeless guy. Uh, another guy that I was in there with was at end stage liver failure. Uh, he was detoxing off of alcohol and like literally they they couldn't stop bleeding uh, from his rectum. His 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 liver was you know he he looked like Santa Claus fat because his liver was in and his skin was completely yellow and his eyes were completely yellow. And he was like a super nice guy. He was nice. And, you know, obviously he hadn't been treated very well throughout his life. He was a misfit and he definitely had huge problems. But, but like you could see what, what happens when you're in detox, you're kind of the lowest of the low, you know, you, you realize, Hey, you're not getting out of there for a little while and you are not in charge of anything. That's when I realized for, you know, four and a half years or whatever since since I'd been basically running a dental practice. I'm not gonna say I was running it well, but but it was mine, you know, it was I was making the payment and I was seeing the patients. Um I had been in charge of things and I had been in charge of my life. And I realized that night that that was over. I, I was not in charge of anything at that point. Um I didn't look at the fact that I could have left if I had wanted to. And maybe it's because I have such low self esteem. I'm, I'm maybe I'm lucky that way. Because I never thought about leaving. I never thought about, I, I, I figured I was just going to continue to see what was going on, you know, and, and, and literally as soon as I got there, I, I will say this, I was motivated to stop. I had been trying to stop on my own. So, but I, I had never like gone to an AA or an A meeting or really talked to, to someone who had been in any kind of recovery at all. So I didn't know how it worked at all. Like I literally was the very first exposure to recovery you know, up close and personal at, that I'd ever seen was that detox center. I had never been anywhere. I never, I didn't know anything. I was learning everything from scratch. So the thing I learned that night was that I wasn't in charge. I was going to do what they told me to do. I was going to follow the schedule that they gave me. Um, and it was very humbling. It was very humbling. And the thing is, is that I think about this to this day. Um, you know, when you are running a practice, when you are, are making clinical decisions, when you're, you know, you have a team that looks to you to be their leader and, and, you know, you're used to being in charge, you're used to making decisions. 
And then when you're kind of thrust in this position where you make no decisions, you don't, you literally don't even get to choose what you're going to eat. You, you don't get to choose where you sleep. Um, literally that morning, I, I, if I slept at all, I don't really remember. I just, they kept checking my vitals uh, and like I was looking down the barrel of this new life and not knowing if I was going to be practicing dentistry again, not knowing, you know, my, my parents, my, my dad actually, and, and my oral surgeon buddy, uh, I think my brother-in-law was there. They drove me over to Grand Rapids and I told them everything that was going on with me. I feel terrible. My dad's, they, their brains were melting because I was just coming, I was being open about what I've been doing for the last four years, you know, and I hadn't told anyone what I was doing. So it was, it was incredibly freeing to be able to, to, to puke that out all over them it was kind of cruel, but, but true. And, and, but I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I mean, there was no, especially that first night, there was no uh, plan laid out for what I was going to do, how long I was going to be gone. Would I be able to practice again? Would I, I knew nothing. And I knew quite soon that I wasn't in charge. I would do what I was told to do. So in some ways, I look at it and I think it reminds me a little bit of prison movies where basically, you know, when, you, when you're sent to prison, you know, I, I think of Shawshank Redemption where it's just basically you follow what you, they tell you what to do and you do it or they beat on you or they do. It wasn't, they, wasn't that they beat on you, but, but they were in charge. There was no two ways about it. And there was not a lot of you saying, no, I didn't want to do this. this, this you just did it. So, and they, they had a schedule and, and I was to follow it. And uh, so the first night I, I didn't sleep very well. I got up in the morning. I literally only had the clothes that I'd worn to work the, the day before. So I had like, I had like, you know, uh, an Oxford cloth shirt and, and like some, some dress pants and dress shoes. That's all I had. I didn't have anything else. I didn't have any sweats. I didn't have anything. My parents and, and my wife at this time was actually, when it, when it all came down, my wife was actually in Florida. She wasn't even there. So she was, I, you know, I, I talked to her on the phone like once or twice. Oh, and she was, you know, I was, she was beside herself. And of course she was trying to get home from Florida after all this, what a mess. But, um, my family brought me some, uh, some other clothes and brought me, uh, I remember they brought me some CDs and a CD player, which was a real luxury to have in this place. But I basically had a, a few changes of clothes and a CD player. And, um, that was pretty much it. And so the schedule was, there were a lot of uh, 12-step meetings. There were group therapy sessions. There were, you know, kind of relapse prevention sessions. And you could tell that this was, they basically would run through the same similar schedule day to day in this place. This was not like you started at point A and you ended at point B. They they did a lot of cyclical things. But but I do remember, I remember like in the group therapy sessions how how easy it was for me to talk about what I'd been doing and, and how screwed up things were. And I don't know why it was so easy for me to do it. I, I, I want to say partly because I always used a loan. Like I, when I was, when I was out using, I didn't, I didn't use drugs. I used to drink with, with other people when I was drinking, but you know, I didn't really drink very much when I was, when I was actually in trouble with drugs. That was, it was, uh, I was not about drinking at that point. So I could be a social drinker, but I never used with anyone. Like I always used alone. So the fact of the matter is I knew I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> I was going to follow their instructions and we were doing all this group therapy and, and it was crazy. Like I was digging in and, and talking about what had happened and how screwed up things were. And, and, and no one could believe it. Like no one could believe this, this, this new guy who, who literally was probably still high from his last dose 
was talking about this stuff. And, and I, I look at this and I laugh because I, I even remember the guy who ran the treatment center that I was in said that about me. The day that I coined out, which is that's, that's the term when, when you leave the treatment center, some of these tre- treatment centers will actually have a little ceremony for you. It's, 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 it's like the, the ugliest, most horrifying like graduation ceremony you could ever imagine. But they sort of honor you with a ceremony when you're leaving. And that was, that's what the guy who ran the treatment center said. I've never seen anyone hit the ground running so hard as you. And he says, and actually said, actually, that worries me. There's something wrong with that. Like, uh, heaven forbid that they would actually give you any praise for anything that you did. But because um, <laughs> that's not what it was about at that point. But I do remember that. Like, I opened right up and I'm like, oh, I, hey, if I'm going to do this, I might as well do it. And I have to say that that might be the healthiest thing I ever did for myself. I didn't even know I was doing it. I just didn't know any better. So uh, this long weekend in detox where I just followed the schedule and it was meetings and it was it was, you know, education things. There were some social things, but it wasn't really a social. You you couldn't leave. It was it was inpatient. I was on the third floor of this place, and you couldn't go anywhere. You weren't allowed to go anywhere. And I remember there was this, everyone always had, it's so funny to see emergent social things, even when you've got no other choices. You've got no other options for socializing and social, like, Humans are such social animals. They they do what they're able to do, and the socialization thing and the and the norms that we were kind of allowed to. There was a water, and there was ice and and water. So everyone was drinking water constantly. I don't know exactly why. I don't remember if we were particularly thirsty. They wanted you to stay hydrated, but it was also like it was the only thing we. It was the only choice you could make. Like you could either not have water or have water, and they actually—I I, want to say they had lemonade too. So I can only imagine the type of tooth decay you would get if you stuck around in there. But so, so you know, the choice that you were allowed to make for yourself is to go get yourself some water or lemonade. So everyone did because it was like the only choice that you could actually make. You weren't allowed to make any other choices. So this was what I remembered. It was like everything changed in like a day. I went from literally running my own practice to not being able to, I mean, like I had to ask, ask to go to the bathroom. You know, like it was, it was, I had no control over my life. And like the only choice I got to make was whether I went to get water or not. Now, people who smoked had the option. This was before, like in Michigan, like everything became non-smoking. There was a smoker's lounge. I didn't smoke. I never smoked. But, like, there were a lot of non-smokers that would go in the smoker's lounge just because if we had a break, you could be social with the people that were smoking. I, I didn't do that because it, like it was like a hot box place. It was just a teeny room that, if you can imagine, there was a, one tiny smoking room in this, in this hospital wing. It was, it was insane. The whole thing was insane. So I, I spent that first weekend there, and it was scary. I didn't know what was going to happen. And... The amazing thing is, is you just sort of adapt. You, you start working with the framework that you're given because uh, I don't know that anyone there like just gave up and laid down in bed and refused to do anything. You just kind of did what, what you were allowed to do. Um, there wasn't a ton of free time or anything like that, but there was some. And so you could talk with people. It was, it was really, really, you know, um, there was a framework for everything. You know, you, you, it was, everything was really, what's the word I'm looking for? It's really structured. Everything was structured. And I remember that you'd have doctor's appointments and you'd have, um, you know, they, they, because it was a medical detox, you'd actually have to have medical stuff done to you for a while. 
you know, they'd be checking your, checking your vitals constantly. And they would be, some people were given like uh, mild doses of benzodiazepine for withdrawal symptoms and, and ibuprofen for headache or whatever, you know, these basically it was a medical treatment center, but it was also, it was also just a place to put these people who are drying out, you know? And so that weekend was a long, long weekend. I mean, I remember it. I mean, I remember it in a fog because I didn't remember a lot of stuff real clearly, but I remember very specifically some some things and me going, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I, I was actually starting to learn about the 12 steps a little bit that weekend. I'd never been to, like I, I saw my first speaker meeting. And if you've ever been involved with 12 steps at all, speaker meetings are people who've got some, it's people who share in front of a group, share their strength, you know, their strength and hope. Basically, they, they tell their story, and um, typically these people have had some clean time. They've been out for a while, and so typically it's pretty inspirational. And what I remember is I, I heard some of these early on, and it was amazing to me. I'd never heard any of these. Like, like my story was being written, but it was like so cool to see someone who had actually you know, had been doing it and struggling through it and doing okay. And, and it was crazy because I came to realize that, that I had to shed this thing of me being a dentist first. I just had to be a person first. And that was really weird. That was not something I was used to. That was not something I was comfortable with because, you know, you, you take for granted the status that you have as a doctor in our society, just as simple as that. You really do. You take for granted that stuff. So I, um, finished that weekend up. And interestingly, there's a guy that came the, the treatment center I, I ended up in was called WEMAC. That stands for West Michigan Addiction Consultants. And it was based on a model um, from Talbot. Talbot is probably one of the best-known treatment centers for healthcare professionals. It's in, I think it's in Atlanta, Georgia. And, and there, the story is there is you go and in the first half, phase, phase one is detox. If you need to be detoxed, you do phase one. Well, WEMAC didn't have a medical detox center. They would send people to this hospital that I went to. But once you cleared out of that, you would go to phase two. And phase two was intensive um, therapy, group therapy sessions twice a day. And you'd have individual sessions with your therapist. You, you would um, Basically, you would live in the community. So it was, it was, uh, it was technically an IOP program, an intensive outpatient program. Cause what happened was you'd go there. Once I got out of the detox center, I, I was enrolled at WEMAC and WEMAC, they, WEMAC owned a bunch of, or, or rented a bunch of apartments just down the road. It was really trippy. Last, last year, earlier this year, I, I spoke actually in Grand Rapids, um, actually about addiction at the Michigan Dental Association. meeting. I came down early just so I could drive around in the place where I went to, because I hadn't been there for a hundred years. West Michigan addiction consultants hasn't been around for years. I mean, actually the guy who ran the treatment center died of brain cancer some years back. Just, I mean, it's what happens is when, when you get well and you're doing well for years and years, stuff just changes, right? You know, it's, it's just like, you know, the, the kids that I remember being little kids when I started uh, in my practice are now, they have kids of their own. You know, it's, that's what happens, whether you, whether you plan for it or not, you know, life just changes. So, but when I was, when I was there, they had, they had these apartments and, uh, the men lived with the men and the women, honestly, it was a different apartment complex and no one knew where the women lived and the, and the women didn't know where the men lived. 
we each I think there were like four or five apartments in this giant complex that had WeMac people and there were four people in an apartment. It was one of those it was like a, a two bedroom place. Each bedroom had two beds. So you had a maximum of four people in the apartment living together and then there were other apartments in the complex that had WeMac people. So it's not like WeMac had a place of, you know, it wasn't like WeMac had housing units. They literally were renting apartments in other places. But this was called the therapeutic community. This was where we lived amongst other people that were in treatment with us. And most of the learning, lots of the learning and lots of the, the, the quote unquote treatment that we went through was supposed to happen in this therapeutic setting. And it's, I'll, I'll have lots of stories, but um, you got to know these people really well. This was, this was sort of like, <laughs> this was like going back and living in the dorms kind of in college because you, you had no, no one else to hang out with. You were not, um, you know, you were limited socially to the people that were in treatment. You were not to be out with other people. So you were supposed to stick, you, like you could go do stuff with those people, but you had to stick with those people. There were tons of rules you were supposed to follow and the therapeutic community was supposed to help you follow them by by telling on you if you screwed up, basically. <laughs> this is the bottom line. So we lived in apartments, and then we would come in, and people in phase two, which was the intensive therapy, would show up in the morning at the building, the West Michigan Addiction Consultants building, and then there was, you know, they had two giant group therapy rooms, and then you'd have lunch. You'd have a morning therapy session. You'd have, like, I remember they had sort of a... um I really didn't buy into it at the time at all. Interestingly, I probably would would buy into it more, but they had like a, a spirituality section or, or they called it or, or basically um, it's kind of a mindfulness thing actually, but, but they didn't, it was tough. I was, I was so screwed up as it was. I was not feeling very spiritual at that point. You know, you would sit through it and some people really got into it. Some people didn't, but that was the first thing. And then you go off to your therapy session. Everything was super structured. And then you'd go to lunch and sometimes you had to, every person that went to this treatment center had to go to an AA or NA meeting every day. Like you had to have one and they had to have your card signed. And um, so it was, uh, the treatment center was definitely 12 step based. Um, that's how a lot of treatment centers are now. And I know lots of people go, oh, it's, it's not evidence based, whatever. Bottom line, that's the treatment center I was in. And I think that's where a lot of them are. I don't really even have a beef with that. I, I can talk more about that, but um, so a lot of times you'd go to, you could, if you could go to lunch, it was called the, um, it was called the North club, uh, the, the North club in, in Grand Rapids, they had a, it was an, uh, an Alano club, which was like a, basically it was owned. It was a group that owned this building and it was a giant building full of rooms that you could have AA meetings in. And it was, it was a safe place for recovering people. You know, there was no using and, and they had a little cafeteria thing where you could get lunch there. So a lot of times we would go to the North club, uh, <laughs> club club norte that was we sort of made it sound like a resort it was not a resort it was it was awful but it was it was what it was you know you go get your your awful tuna fish sandwich and a glass of milk and you could go to a a smoky aa meeting but you get that box checked so you'd have time in the evening to watch tv or chill out or whatever so then you come back after lunch and you would do more therapy and then there was usually an activity sometimes there was a a meeting of some sort um you know like a wrap-up meeting and then once a week, if you were a healthcare professional, and there were a lot of them, I was in with, um, I was in with one dentist for like a day. It's crazy. I, I literally took the spot when I came in. The guy who had coined out the Friday before I came in on a Monday, 
the guy who had coined out the week before was a dentist who I just so happened to know and have worked with on the Michigan Dental Association Committee. Great guy. Um, and then there was one other dentist that was in treatment with me for like a week or two weeks. He was actually my roommate. And, um, oh, man, he... He's, he was a, he was a character. He was a character. He was, um, he was a dentist, but he didn't want to talk shop about dentistry at all. He, he, he was like a, he was like a, a dentist on the dental bus kind of thing. Like he went around and, and worked in schools. If I remember correctly, it was crazy. It was, it was just nuts. Um, I didn't really dig into that with him very deeply. And, and there was a fair amount of, honestly, I hope he's listening to this. If he is, uh, you know, email me, Alan at the Alan meet experience. I'd love to hear from you. Um, but he didn't believe he was an alcoholic. There was no doubt about it. He believed that he was taking some medications that caused him to do some crazy things that he caught, got caught for. And there were, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, it's, it's kind of like, uh, if you ever, if you ever saw the, um, the Shawshank redemption, they always talked about, uh, everyone and everyone in the, everyone in prison was, was innocent. My lawyer me. That was, that was the line that, that they always said, uh, and and there was quite a bit of that. They're like, you know, I don't really have a problem. I'm only here to kind of get out of trouble. And there there was a lot of that. There are a lot of people who didn't own their problem. There are a lot of people who were there just to get out of trouble. Um, it's crazy. But so I was in with a bunch of healthcare professionals. So I was in with a ton of nurses, a ton of anesthesiologists. Oh my gosh! And it does make sense to some extent because anesthesiologists have access to all like like an addict like me who's really into opiates and other you know heavier drugs like that. Anesthesiologists push around carts full of that stuff all day, every day. You know, I can't. And you know, so the, the the story is, dentists have a ton of access to drugs if we want it, but there's a lot of hospital situations where you have even more access. Nurses have constant act to access to to opiate medications, and you take a dose and you're supposed to give it to the patient, but if there's any left over, you're supposed to waste it. You know, and no one there was a lot of people that wouldn't waste it; they would hang on to it, and so they would, a lot of nurses got hung up with IV drugs because. The access was so easy. So, and then anesthesiologists were, were a lot of that. Um, a ton of nurses, uh, a ton of, ton of family practice docs like me that just had access to pills and stuff like that. Um, I was in with a couple hand surgeons. That was interesting. Um, I never, like there were, there were doctors that were in here that I didn't even realize these specialties existed. Um, it, it was crazy. Like, like, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a hand surgeon. Lo and behold, I had a, I had a roommate who was a hand surgeon, and, and, and then there was another guy that came in that was a hand surgeon while I was there. It's just, it was just like all these things were crazy and new, but what was nuts about it is we all had these backgrounds. I, and I was in with some people who were not – I was in with pharmacists, too. That was the other thing. I'm sorry. Tons of pharmacists, which makes perfect sense, right? Like pharmacists, like anesthesiologists, have constant access to, to the good stuff, right? You know, and, and who's keeping track? If the pharmacists aren't keeping track – no one's keeping track, right? So I was in with a bunch of pharmacists. Um, but we also had regular people, if you will. This was kind of geared for healthcare professionals, but it was also just just sort of a, a premium treatment center, if you will. So I, I was in with, um, we had a couple people that were sort of independently wealthy and they just didn't want to go to a treatment center that had riffraff, essentially. Um, that was a really tough situation because someone who is independently wealthy and by independently wealthy, I mean like family money. They, they don't have to work. It's a really tough situation. If you get into drugs and you're like that, if you don't have a purpose in your life of some sort, there is no reason that you wouldn't spend all your money on drugs. If, if that's your, if that's your thing, it was crazy. So, um, I was in with, there were a couple 
younger people, like really younger people who had obviously parents of means and they didn't want their, their kids to go to a, like a, a regular treatment center. So they, it's crazy. You had, you know, 19 year old girl who was doing, uh, these crazy benzos in like, in like the rave culture showing up with a bunch of doctors. It was, it was, and actually, you know, she was great. We all kind of learned from each other, but it was just like this crazy misfit, weird culture of people going through this situation together. And, what what I mean to tell you, when you've got all these, tr- these people in a treatment center who are used to being in charge, I mean, anesthesiologists run the operating room. These, I mean, anesthesiologists have these people's lives in their hands. People die if they're not doing the right thing. So do you think that maybe there's an ego behind that? You think dentists are egotistical and weird, man? Some of these, some of these medical people, some of these medical people are really, really egotistical. Some of these people have, you know, they're used to, getting their way and and that's just the way they are so watching them in a situation where they they are given no power they are they are you know they're supposed to do what they're told and if they don't there are consequences and um they're not used to that it it's amazing like like when you're used to being in charge of your own little fiefdom and you come in and and you have to submit and be humble some people have a real hard time with it some people really struggle with it and and some people never really get well after all that. Like after all that, they still turn around and they they can't they can't do it because they can't think of a they can't think of a life without addiction without their active addiction. And that's what honestly that's the reason most people don't get clean. It's not because it's not because you know the 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 doctors got them got them hooked on drugs, and it's not because uh, you know they they have chronic pain they can't deal with. It's the reality is is that most of the time when people don't can't stop using it's because they don't really want to stop using it's it's they want to use more than they want to not use and so they eventually fall back into it because it's just it's just drives them so i will tell you that when i got there i really wanted to stop using i didn't know if i could but i knew i wanted to stop and i, I actually knew i've told this story a million times i knew that i was going to be okay i'm i will never say that i'm i'm relapse proof but i knew i was probably going to be all right and i wasn't going to go back when I could look at the situations that weren't bad, the situations that were good, like the the time when you can sit with a colleague and have a cocktail and just have a have a nice conversation or have a beer or two and have a nice social situation, like when I knew that even that didn't sound good to me because I just I just wanted to take life on life's terms and I didn't want to alter the way I was feeling at all. I'm not judging if you do if you do that and you're comfortable with that, that's great. It never worked for me. It, it's not working for me. And I realized I was going to be okay when I when I when I was able to say I just don't want to go back there anymore. I just it's not worth the risk. Even though even though there's clearly some pleasant things that can happen when you can do things responsibly, I haven't proven and, and probably never will prove that that I can do that. In any case, so it took a lot of humility, and it was I did pretty well with the humility, and maybe it's because I was young. I was only thirty, and I'd been practicing dentistry for four years, but I I knew that I'd been screwing up. I knew that I didn't. I knew that I wasn't the world's greatest dentist because I, you know, you can't you can't really dig in and get great CE and become amazing when you spend most of your waking hours wondering where your next fix is going to come. You know, clearly I'm I, I I knew that I wasn't I didn't come in on a roll. Let's just say that. But there's a lot of people that really felt like they did. I also was in with a pilot, which is really scary when you think about that. Um, and a lot of these people believe, yeah, I might have had a problem with drugs, but it didn't affect my job. And that was the thing that. What people didn't realize is that when you're an addict, 
even if you're not high, your addiction affects your job because your mind is in another place or you're in withdrawal or you, or you're hungover or whatever. I mean, like it always affects the job no matter what. And a lot of these people didn't really, they, they didn't, they couldn't bring themselves to say that, that, that the actions they had taken as a drug addict had affected people around them. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm convinced that's the key to, to getting better. One of the other people, one of the people that one of my good, good friends, um, made a huge impact on my life was a veterinarian. And, um, he was a great guy. He's a great guy. And he actually had been sober from alcohol for like 18 years before he fell back into addiction. And what he fell back into, if you can imagine this, he was like 55 years old. He was a middle-aged guy and he got into ketamine because veterinarians use ketamine a lot to do surgery on animals. I, I mean, like in a lot of cases, the, for, for uh, neutering a male is a relatively straightforward surgery. A lot of times they don't even have to do it sterile. And so they'll do ketamine just to make the, it's a dissociative and the, the cat just sits there like a, like a lump. But, um, you know, and so he had a lot of these drugs around and that's what he got hung up on. It's crazy stories, crazy stories. But, um, all of us were in this crazy situation where we, we had to follow the rules that other people were, were put on us. We, we had a ton of rules that we had to follow and and we, so we lived in these apartments, um, some of us, like like when I got in there, I lived with another dentist and a lawyer, um, and those guys had been there for a while, for some months, and they were, um, they were gonna get out soon, you know. So they were sort of the they were sort of the the juniors and seniors for my fresh to my freshman. Who else was I in with? I was as a dentist and a lawyer, and then we had I, like your roommates would sort of come and go because. It, it was one of these things where WEMAC was classic. Like when, when you consulted with them at first, they told you that the program was typically, um, they told everyone they'd be there for, you know, six weeks. And the reality is, is no one ever finished treatment in six weeks there at all. You went through phase one, which was intensive therapy. And I was in phase one for a month and a half, maybe two. I think I can't remember. I, I, I got in in January and I, I got into phase two in early March. So it was two, two months of phase two. And then phase three was phase three. They called mirroring. And this was interesting. So your phase three, you had more freedom and a little bit more freedom. You would go to, they would place you in a local, another local treatment center. And they had, they had a lot of treatment centers in Grand Rapids at the time. And I'm, I'm sure they still do. Grand Rapids is a decent sized city. And they had a lot of treatment centers. And so they placed you. Interestingly, I got placed in the treatment center that was the detox center that I started out in. So like two months after I had come in and literally in the clothes that I was wearing, I was sent back to be. And you were essentially, you were kind of helping out with the group therapy. I don't know that you were were placed there to help out. You were placed there to mirror. You were supposed to see the different kinds, how addiction showed itself in the group therapy of people who were newer than you were essentially. So you were kind of like, you were like the grad assistant. You were like the grad student that was supposed to be sitting in to watch, you know, watch group therapy. But what ended up happening was the therapist would use you because you'd been around for a couple months and you'd gone to a bunch of meetings and you'd been in a bunch of therapy. They would sort of help. They wanted you to help with the therapy, which, which honestly was kind of fun. You kind of got to practice your moves a little bit. You kind of got to practice what you were learning about recovery and, and, and why people, the way people think were thinking was kind of off and how they could, it was, it was really a great experience. I have to say like, like 
they set this treatment up in a way that for me really helped. Um, I, and I don't know that there's a place like that in Michigan now. I, I'm not sure how many other treatment centers are based on that Talbot model, but um, that's, that's kind of where I was with it. It was, I, I felt like it was a good thing for me, but what was interesting, they gave, they gave me more freedom. They gave you more freedom. Like you had to go there during the day, you could go to lunch and then you would go there in the afternoon and, and the therapist would tell you when, when you could go. And so you had a little bit more free time. You, um, you were supposed to, you weren't supposed to go, even if you'd been there for a while, you weren't supposed to just like go out to a movie alone. Like you were supposed to take a buddy with you. Uh, the first month that you're in treatment, you are on the buddy system where you are not to be alone at all. Um, like you, you can't go out and get a coffee for yourself. You have to bring a buddy. And so what happens is you get used to just being around the people in the community. Um, you would get off buddy is what they called it after. I don't know. I, I think it was the first week or so. The, and, and the community would vote you off buddy. So if they felt like you were okay to be off buddy, you'd be off. But there's some people that were on buddy the whole time they were in because they were, they were flaky. They had, they would relapse while they were in treatment, all this stuff. So some people never got off buddy, but so I, I was, uh, I was off buddy after the first week. And then, there's so much to talk about in this, in, in this, I realized that I've already gone on for like 45 minutes. I'm going to, I would love some feedback from my listeners. If you find this interesting at all, if this is something that you're finding just a, an interesting story, I would love it. If you'd give me some feedback, uh, email me at Alan, A L A N at the Alan experience.com. Or let's be honest. I don't always check that email. So I should probably say, email me at info at dentalhacks.com. Uh, if you, if you give me the feedback, I would love to know if you think this is boring or you think it sucks, don't give me feedback. If you think this is something that's interesting, I would love to dig in more. I don't know that I ever told this story and I didn't realize that I was literally just getting started with it. Like I've already, I've already gone for like 45 minutes and I I don't want to, I don't want to wear out my welcome. But my point in the beginning was that Stoics and Stoicism, as I'm studying it, are very they understand the fact that everything is transitional. Nothing is forever. And I was applying this to the fact that what happens if for some reason I woke up tomorrow and I couldn't practice dentistry, would I be okay? And the bottom line is I've had this experience where I was gone from my practice for four and a half months and I was okay. I came back. I came back and I've practiced dentistry for 16 years since then. So it can work and it's kind of freeing because I think to myself, if I had to stop, if I, it would be okay. It was okay once and there's no reason that it couldn't be okay again. And so in a way, I think that's a really good exercise to, to, to use in your head. Like what, what would life be like if you didn't have this, this situation that you built for yourself, you know, and, and what would you do next? Like what, what career would you think of? What would you do next? Cause if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably like me. You're not going to do nothing. That's not an option. You're going to do something. So what would you do next? And, and knowing that I was in treatment for four and a half months, and I'm, again, I'm happy to pick up where I left off here if, if this is interesting to people, um, I survived it. And, and, and knowing that is incredibly valuable. Like, like in a way, there's, there's a lot of things. I'm fearful about tons of things, but one of the things I'm not fearful about is if I had to be gone for a long time, you know, would my patients take me back? Would my, it happened and it was okay. It was all okay. So just an interesting thought 
exercise. You know, what would you do if you didn't have what you had now, if you couldn't go back to what you had now? So, uh, my friends, thank you a ton for listening. Again, if you find this interesting at all, and uh, if you've got any value from it, I would love to hear from you. Info at dentalhacks.com. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again. Oh, hey, uh, Christmas. The next episode would be Christmas. I think I'm going to not put one out on Christmas. Maybe, maybe there will be a surprise one out there, but I think I'm planning on probably putting one out next Wednesday. Uh, but thank you again for listening and give me some feedback. I'd love to hear if you thought this was valuable and we'll talk to you again real soon. If you find the Alan Mead experience valuable at all, I would love it if you'd go over to your podcast software and leave a review, leave five stars or better than that, type a review out, tell people what you're hearing, what's valuable. And, uh, man, that means a ton to me. I really appreciate that. And we will talk to you again next episode.